everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. You can take a seat. My name is Amos. Welcome to the Vineyard. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but as you walked in, there were these little communion cups. We'll be taking communion later. If you did forget, there are some that I set back by the giving baskets. Uh, So you can go and get them at any point. And then, of course, in a little bit, we'll be opening up our Bibles to Leviticus because, believe it or not, we are... I think finishing up our Leviticus series today, but I I wondered, because we really only got to chapter 16, if in August you would prefer doing a summer reading series like we've been doing uh, historically, or if you want to go back in and do Leviticus 2.0. So can we vote by noise? (laughs) Who wants to do a summer reading series? Who wants to do Leviticus 2.0? All right. Well, I think that that works for me. We did a book study, uh, Deeply Formed, in February. So, like, we were pretty engaged in reading a book together as a church. So, I guess uh, Leviticus in August. July 4th, remember, is going to be a prayer service that will not be live streamed because it's going to be something that, like, we're inviting everybody to participate in at some level. And so, to make it feel comfortable and authentic and safe for, like, you guys to be present. Uh, we will not be live streaming that. That's, that's next week already. Can you believe it? And then the rest of July will be TED Talks. It's been a while. If you're new to our church, you've never experienced them, but they're one of, I think, the highlights of the year for me. And it's not just because I don't speak. <laughs> I actually really love speaking, but I, I take a step back because we believe that part of how God works is he gives gifting and stories to everybody who follows him. And so while I spend most of the year kind of exegeting the text and seeing how God is at work in the Bible, in the month of July, we take a look at how God is at work in your lives. In a sense, you're exegeting your life for how God is working. And so we have uh, six speakers lined up over the three weeks, plus... uh, Kids will be sharing as well, so I guess that would add up to like nine different voices that will be sharing throughout the month of July. And it's actually, um, it's one of the times, strangely enough, in our church life where we get the most visitors and people come and experience how and hear how God has been working in the lives of like you guys. And then it's the time where visitors are most likely to actually stay and engage in our church long term. So it's it's summer. But it's really a time to invite and to come and engage and listen because, I mean, people really, they do a really nice job, and I'm looking forward to that. Let's see here. One other thing for now. Uh, This summer, we really want to love like Jesus in practical ways, and so we're starting an initiative to help motivate and celebrate the ways that you are serving your neighbors, your friends, uh, anybody basically that 
you know, and we want to capture that in something called 100 Hours of Service. So we have set up a website on our homepage, csvineyard.org backslash 100. Everybody should go and visit that website at least once in the next two months. Um, because on that website, you can ask for help. Feel free to give this website away to friends and neighbors. We have a team of people who are looking for good things to do. So if you have a neighbor who like really could use some help with yard work, don't fill the form out for them, but tell them about the place. And maybe after talking to them, you could offer to fill out the form, but don't just uh, have us show up to a house that wasn't asking for help, you know, like we don't want that to happen. But there's also a place to um, report the ways that you've served. And I know some of you will be really hesitant to do that. But again, it's a way to capture what the church is doing to serve the community. And as we, like every week, check in, we'll be getting new ideas on how to serve. We'll be able to see how big the heart of the Vineyard Church, <clears throat> excuse me, in Chester Springs is. And so there's ideas there, there's a way to report, there's a way to ask for help. There's also a few events that have been set up uh, that you could jump in and engage with. So for instance, on July 4th, Pottstown is doing a street festival. Do you guys know about this? If you're in Pottstown, maybe you do. And uh, on that website, there's a, a link to their sign-up genius. But there's other things too, like we'll be serving Good Samaritan Shelter, the Chester Springs, or not Chester Springs, the Chester County Food Bank. If you uh, or your life group sets up a day where you're going to go serve together and you want us to put that on the website for others to see and potentially come with you, like just email church at csvineyard.org or if you have my email, it's simple, amos at csvineyard.org. Let me know about what you're doing because we really see this as an organic thing, right? Like we've, we've planned a few quote-unquote, big church events, but it's really about what you're already doing, what you'll do, and helping to, like, add some momentum as we serve over the summer. So 100 hours of service is our goal for the church at large. I have to believe we'll just knock that out of the park with the, the kind of church we have. So csvineyard.org backslash what? 100. I'll probably, if you guys are on the database, I'll send you a text to that website too sometime in the next two weeks, okay? So let's take a deep breath and invite the Holy Spirit to come as we study the book of Leviticus. Holy Spirit, come. <clears throat> we thank you for being a God who wants to meet with us. And so send your presence so that we can feel that you are close. Just as in the book of Leviticus, over and over again, you communicate to us like you designed us to be a people of the presence, designed to be people who live in your presence, God. Let your presence come and transform us so that the words we hear don't just hit our brains, but they hit our hearts and lead to changed lives. And so we come in with our whole self, with the 
the joy and the happiness and the celebration, but also the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the anger, we bring our whole selves into this place because all of us needs you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know a lot of you have been bringing your Bibles. Good job. There's a few more in the back. The hardcovers back there are the same page numbers as the one that I have in my hands here. It's the Jesus-centered Bible in the NLT. Um, And if you want to open up your book, your Bible to the book of Leviticus chapter 16 in your Bible, it'll probably say the Day of Atonement there. But before we start reading, uh, I want you to remember that this book is not only written, these passages, these words are not only written to people a long time ago, but in a very different cultural situation. So we live in a Western culture. You guys know that, right? So we think or elevate ideas and concepts and abstractions and definitions, and it's not like that in the Eastern world. So not only are we translating 3,000 years into the past, we're also translating into an entirely different way of thinking, which is still evident in places in the East, but instead of thinking in definitions and abstractions, in the East you think through metaphor and action and ceremony. It's very embodied, it's very visual, it's very sensual. And beyond that, in the Eastern world, it's not primarily individualistic like it is here in the West. So even when we think about salvation in America, for instance, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is almost always presented to an individual with an individual response. And that's not wrong, but it's also not complete because the message comes to a Middle Eastern context in the time of Jesus, but coming out of the Eastern world, the idea of having a community. And so salvation is not just about getting to go to heaven when you die. Salvation is about joining together as a people becoming part of a family of God. And so what is described here in particular in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement is meant to encapsulate, to embrace, to bring salvation to a community. The people of Israel, then the church today. And so Leviticus 16, we'll just do with verse 2, It says here, the Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. And the belief then was that if you, as a human, walked into the presence of God, and anything about you was unclean or sinful or you'd missed the mark or anything in your heart was, was just misaligned or misaimed, that you would die because of the holiness of God, you, you just wouldn't be able to survive it. And so what we're going to be reading is what the priest would do ritually to cleanse himself so that this one time per year, someone would walk into what was called the Holy of Holies. And that 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 ark, you guys know what the ark kind of looked like? Look, there's a box, and on top of the box, we would call them like angel-type things, but they're beings with wings called cherubim. 
And in other places in the Bible, it's called the mercy seat. So while God is extremely holy and is a God of justice, you enter into the presence of God and the place where he sits is called the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which inside there's a couple of things like the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod. Uh, But it's separated from the rest of the tabernacle through a curtain. And I actually have a I have a picture of the tabernacle, if you could show that one. So you just, to get an idea, there is this tent, right? Because they're in the wilderness, they're traveling when Leviticus is written through this desert. And when they moved, they would pack everything up and they, even the like, the lampstand that you saw there and the table, there, there were like these rings that you could put poles through so you could carry them around. And so in the, in the main area, you have the seven-pronged candelabrum and the a table with bread on it. Interestingly enough, Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. Almost like this tabernacle is trying to describe a person. But behind the curtain then, past the, that would be the altar of incense, which would fill the air with like this very fragrant smoke there was a curtain and the Ark of the Covenant was there. That's the most holy place where on this day, the high priest, in this case Aaron, would enter. So let's keep going. We stopped at verse 3. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Take a bath. Don't stink up the priestly garments, okay? I have a picture of this too. Actually, there's two pictures uh, illustrated, of course. We don't know exactly what the garments looked like, but what do you notice between the The outfit on the left, which is the linen that the priest would wear on the Day of Atonement, and the picture on the right, which would be his normal, like, I'm the high priest, look at me outfit. What's different? The one on the right is more fancy, maybe a little more strange, because his normal garments, the idea was that they would portray this otherworldly element, like... As the high priest, I stand in between, like God and people, in between heaven and earth. And, or I should say, but when I go into the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant is, I'm going to dress plain, because the most holy place is actually where God dwells. So in like very, uh, you know, symbolic but real terms as well, this is heaven. Like when he walks through that curtain, he's taking a step into heaven, and now he's dressed all in white, in much plainer attire to represent the people. Like he leans toward what would be more normally worn by the people. And if if you're paying attention, these garments were made of what? Linen. So when you read the Bible, you want to have your eyes open and your ears perk up when you read uh, words that you've heard before in the Bible. Where else do linen garments show up? Think New Testament. Think Gospels. Jesus 
is buried in linen garments. And so when he's resurrected, you see the empty linen garments laying there where he was. But now he is alive. And so the deed is done. The garments are left behind. Jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 4. I told you a couple weeks back, uh, if you're going to follow along with this series, reading through Leviticus might not be like the most fun, and it's pretty detailed and, and jarring, but read through Hebrews because it, it will help give context to the book of Leviticus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, not Aaron, Jesus, the Son of God, who made himself flesh just like us and dwelt among us. Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, who is, right, when Aaron went into the most holy place, it was if he was entering heaven. Now Jesus enters the real heaven, like not made by human hands. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same things we do, yet did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. Remember what that Ark of the Covenant was called right above it? The mercy seat. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And so Jesus is our new high priest. He is the one who invites us into the most holy place, the place of God's presence, heaven, heaven on earth, heaven as it breaks through into our present day and present time. Okay, back to Leviticus 16. Did, you leave your, did I tell you to leave a finger there? I didn't. But uh, go back to Leviticus 16. Because, again, we're entering back into this, this festival, this high holy day. And this is actually one of several festivals or high holy days that the Jews, the people of Israel, would celebrate. Can anybody guess how many there are in total? If you've been here the last few weeks, there's a number that keeps coming up. Seven, lucky guess. That was a joke. But yes, seven uh, total holidays, which points us back to creation in Genesis 1 and 2 because there were seven days of creation, now bringing in the new creation. And the word for uh, festival that was used, uh, mikra, Am I saying that right? I mean, you, you know, right? It's Mikra, yeah. Could be translated as festival, but it could also be translated as rehearsal. So these celebrations, festivals, sometimes are pointing back to things that had happened in the past, like the Passover would be an example of one of the festivals. God rescued his people from Egypt out of slavery. But it could also be a rehearsal for what is yet to come. So when you read through these festivals, like the Day of Atonement, think, yeah, it's, it's pointing to a present reality that the people are enacting, but it's a rehearsal for something bigger, something greater, something that is yet to be. And so the Day of Atonement is, in a calendar year, actually the second holiday that's 
celebrated. Anybody have any Jewish friends? Do you know what the new year is called in uh, Judaism? Rosh Hashanah. So the Day of Atonement is actually, in a sense, flowing out of Rosh Hashanah, the new year. It's on the 10th day after Rosh Hashanah. The Day of Atonement, also called in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. So Rosh Hashanah takes us into Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah celebrates the new year with the blowing of a trumpet or shofar, would be like the Hebrew word for it, like a ram's horn, because it's saying this is a new start, this is a fresh year, this is a new beginning. The old way of things has passed away, the old year is gone, the new year has come. It's a new day. I'm trying to draw two things together. Some of you who know your Bibles know that in the book of Revelation, there is a trumpet blast that marks not a new year, but a new era where God makes all things new. You see how cool this is? How these things connect to Jesus and his like promised future? Okay, so new day, trumpet blast, time of reflection, time of repentance, time of soul-searching leads to the Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And Aaron does a variety of things to get himself ready, to make himself clean. Um, His preparation, traditionally actually, would start one week before the day. And on the night before Yom Kippur, this is later tradition, actually. This isn't necessarily written in the Bible. By the day of Jesus, it was a a week-long preparation. So think about Jesus' death and what happens the week before his death. Holy week begins seven days prior. And then the night before there would be people assigned to make sure the high priest would not accidentally fall asleep. And so the high priest was up all night before the day where the sins of the people would be atoned for. You don't want to do anything in the middle of the night while you're sleeping to accidentally make yourself unclean. That was the idea. And so they would, you know, poke him with a stick or something. I don't know, spray him with a water pistol. Uh, Keep, keep the high priest awake because it is really important that he is ceremonially clean. And he puts on the linen garments, and now he goes into um, I guess I'm going to be representing the people mode. In verse, let's see here. Okay, he takes in verse 7 two male goats and presents them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He casts sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. And that's some actually really tricky uh, Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. That word Azazel will come up again here in verse uh, 10, I think. But let's keep reading. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat, that's the Azazel. 
So the, the English translation is trying to just clean things up and make things a little easier for us to understand. But the word for scapegoat here, Azazel, uh, carries on another meaning, which is communicated now in verse 10. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by the lot to be sent away. So the, the scapegoat will be sent away. The, the scapegoat will be taken away outside the city. When it is sent away to Azazel, which, again, the translation here is a little weird, but the idea is that out to the wilderness, uh, the Azazel is taken out of the camp, past the gathering of people, into the wilderness, as far as they can get that goat away. And by Jesus' day, again, it's not a Jew who brings the goat away, it's a Gentile. Because you don't want to be a Jew with the short stick who accidentally has to take the scapegoat, the Azazel, which will be carrying the entire like sin of the people. And especially if that Azazel wanders back into the camp and starts eating your turnips out of your garden, like that would be a bad day for you if uh, the sin of the people ended up in your backyard. So anyway, they, they, would take, they would choose a Gentile, and the Gentile would take the goat out as, as far as they could into the wilderness. Okay. When it is sent away, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. And so just jump down to verse 20, because they do something to this goat uh, symbolically, and it's described in verse 20. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. And then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. And so the people were given this symbol. Remember, these are Eastern-minded people in an Eastern culture. They, they see it. They enact it. They, they confess their sins onto the head of the goat. And so the goat now carries it. The sins that you've committed are not meant to be carried by you in God's plan, in other words. And I know that some of you are carrying around a heavy, heavy burden of sin or betrayal uh, or, or of, of bitterness, of, of anger and rage. And could I just say, like, I mean, who in this room struggles a little bit with pride or self-centeredness or selfishness? Maybe I should ask the other way. Is there anybody in the room who does not struggle with pride or self-centeredness or selfishness? Anybody? Any takers? Like, we, we all have that. But, but for some of us, we've got addiction that we can't seem to get free of. And it's like a chain wrapped around our neck. And for others, it's anger and rage that just burns when we get pricked. Like the smallest, seemingly most insignificant comment from our spouse or from our child will just set us off. For some of us, it's greed. And let me just say stinginess. Uh, I'm Dutch, like ethnically. Like Dutch frugality is a positive way of saying <laughs> perhaps we've, we're a little, we like to hang on to our money 
Dutch, yep, uh, South African go football. I don't know. Um, like, some of us just have greedy, stingy hearts, and some of us carry around this insecurity, and we tell ourselves, I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad person. I'm worthless. What good am I? I'm unlovable. This is not meant to be carried by you. For, for many of us, it's unforgiveness that we just can't let go of. You know that's actually a sin, like to not forgive someone. And I'm, I mean, I'm talking anything. And you're the one carrying it. And maybe it was a betrayal or maybe it was something your dad did to you or maybe it was something your teacher said back in fourth grade or maybe it was something as awful and terrible as abuse. Maybe you've been sexually abused. God doesn't want you to carry that in your heart. He wants you to be free. He wants you to forgive. And so the high priest would lay his hands on the goat, symbolically transferring the guilt and the weight onto it. I mean, it'd be really, it'd be great if we had a goat here today to do this. But I want to, I want to just, again, transport ourselves into that place where now we're thinking about Jesus as our high priest. Jesus as the one who takes our place, who bears the weight of all of our sin. If, if you remember a few weeks ago, we read from Hebrews 9, and it says there that, that Jesus is actually the one who becomes the, the once and final and perfect sacrifice so that the old sacrificial system doesn't have to be done and redone and done over again. The year of atonement was done once a year, and it was both the cleansing of sin, the carrying away of the burden of sin far off into the wilderness, and entering into the presence of God. The high priest in his linen, like humanly normal garb, the white robes, would walk into the presence of God. And there was another uh, tradition that, again, would have been active during Jesus' day. They, they took a red, like a red cord that was designed to or meant to represent the sins of the people, and they would they would place it on the goat's head. And it was red because it was representative of the blood that should be shed by the guilty parties. And they would take, oh, this is great. This is good. Hi, buddy. He's a little scared. I guess there's a lot of sin in this room. He knows what's coming. <laughs> How are you doing? So the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat. 
and confess the sins of the people. All the bitterness, all the rage, all the unforgiveness would be transferred. And then later they would take this scarlet rope or ribbon that again was stained with guilt and lay it on its head. Not around its neck, interestingly, but lay it on its head. And then a Gentile, who we we have a Gentile right here. (laughs) After the guilt of all the people was laid on the head of the goat, the Gentile would take it out into the wilderness. Not into the closet, into the wilderness. Your sins are forgiven. Can you feel that? So in a lot of churches, they'll do something where they confess sin and the priest will stand up and say, your sins are forgiven. But that's like, that's abstract. How do you, how do you visualize that? How do you feel that in your bones? But to see a goat walk out of the camp into the wilderness, representing the weight of your guilt and your sin and your shame and your inadequacy and your rage and your pride, there it goes. It's gone. And your sins are forgiven. And the weight is lifted. And you are free. Go to John 19. This is an account of some of the last things that happened to Jesus before he dies. And so many of you know the story. He's betrayed by one of his dear friends in the garden. He's brought to religious leaders who keep him up all night under trial, and they question him, and they accuse him, but then they bring him to Pilate, who's sort of like the Roman, who the Romans at this time are occupying Israel, the Judea, and Pilate is the one who could actually uh, deliver the sentence that the religious leaders are looking for. He could deliver a sentence of death because he represents the Roman authority who is in control and who is ruling then. So Pilate, it says in verse 1 of chapter 19, had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and pressed it down. And so you can imagine that around his head, below the crown of thorns, is a red stain that covers his forehead. And they put on a purple robe. Do you remember the color of the high priest garment? Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Now jump to verse 12. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. 
Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. And some of you, you probably remember when, uh, when Pilate actually tries to free Jesus, because they don't think, he doesn't see that Jesus has done anything worthy of death. The crowd shouts, crucify him. That's what you probably remember. And that is how it shows up in other accounts. But look at verse 15. This is what the crowd says. Away with them, he, they yelled. Away with him. Take him away. Crucify him. Azazel, take him away. And so Pilate replies, what? Crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. And then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called Uh, the place of the skull in Hebrew Golgotha, and there they nailed him to the cross. You guys know where Golgotha is relative to the city? It's outside the walls. You find in uh, the other accounts that it is Gentile Roman soldiers who take Jesus and lead him out of the city, Azazel, along with the guilt of the entire world along with your guilt. And again, communally as well, along with our guilt, along with the sins of this nation and the sins of the world, laid on Jesus' head, taken out of town, and with him, the weight of it all. And so while we Westerners like to elevate the abstract and the definition and the principles, we actually need these very symbolic, embodied, physical uh, things and rituals to help us understand exactly what Jesus is doing. And so on the night that he's betrayed, he takes a piece of bread, and he's actually taking a Passover meal, another one of the high holy days. And he gives thanks for it. And he turns to his disciples, and he says, this is my body given for you. And so take, eat, remember, and believe. And likewise, he takes a cup of wine and he gives thanks for it. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, the new promise. I am your new high priest. I go to heaven. I sit on the throne. My presence is available to all of you. And just as the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, on the day of Jesus' death, God's presence symbolically with the curtain ripped from top to bottom flows out into his people, into the entire world. 
And so take and drink and remember and believe. Let's pray as the worship band comes forward. And let's stand. Jesus, help us to understand what you did for us. But also help us to understand the freedom and the life that you invite us into. A life that is filled with your presence. A life that is free from the weight of sin and death and guilt. And so come Holy Spirit. Come and make us new. Come and enliven our worship as we sing. Come and meet us here now. Help us to feel that you are present. Speak to us your words of kindness and love and mercy. Come Holy Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.